This morning, we are continuing in the book of Romans. We come now to Romans chapter 9, which if you've read the Bible, you've read the book of Romans, you are probably aware that it is probably one of the most controversial passages of Scripture. Romans 9, for many, is a cherished text. It is a text, especially if you are identified with the Reformed uh, tradition, your Reformed Presbyterian, you appreciate the sovereignty of God that is emphasized by the Apostle Paul. If that is not your background, you may have struggled with understanding Romans 9 and what Paul is getting at here. I will say this, that as I approached this chapter, it was my intention to take it as one chapter, um, because I think it is helpful to see the big picture overview. And we're still going to try to do that, but we're going to have to do it in two parts, just because there's so much going on here. Maybe a better preacher than me would be able to condense this, but I don't want to keep you too long. So uh, we're going to go ahead and take a two-part kind of sermon to this chapter of Romans 9. With that, though, let us look, beginning at Paul's words in Romans 9, 1. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them... Belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return. And Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man and our forefather Isaac, though they are not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that the purpose of God's election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so that he has mercy on whomever he wills, but he hardens whomever he wills. Who will say to me then, 
Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make it of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make the riches of his glory for his vessels of mercy known, which he hath prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And to her who has was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Let us pray. Father in heaven. We do thank you for your word. We're thankful for the truth that you reveal to us. I ask now that you would give us a sense of your majesty and your glory and your holiness, that you would show us who you are so that we might know you and that you would extend your grace and mercy to us and bring us once again into your presence through Christ our Lord, who is our only mediator, our only hope upon which we stand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul lays out for us the thesis of this entire letter that he has written to the Roman church. He said there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. Now, Romans chapters 9 through 11 that we are entering in now is the vindication of that thesis statement. He's going to show us how the gospel of God is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and to the Greek, to everyone who believes. Back in Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul strung together doctrine upon doctrine, truth upon truth, to show us what the gospel is, what it's all about what the gospel says. And now here in 9 through chapter 11, he's going to answer the question of how, how is the gospel the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew and also to the Gentile? And that's a valid question to ask. How is it the power of God? Because, uh, we look at the world and we are staggered by the unbelief of people in general. And for Christians uh, that Paul was writing to in Romans, they were staggered especially by the unbelief of the Jews in particular. So if the gospel is truly the power of God to, uh, to salvation for everyone that believes, to the Jew first and the Gentile, then why do so many people continue in unbelief? Where's the power? Or to put it another way, does the widespread unbelief in the world, and particularly of the Jewish people who were God's people in the Old Testament, does that mean that the word of God, the promise of God, the gospel has failed? Now let's put those questions or that question really into a more personal context because we've all asked this, I'm sure, as Christians. 
we might say it or ask it like this. We'd say, if the gospel really is powerful enough to save, then why, why does my unbelieving father or my unbelieving mother or my brother and sister or friend, colleague, persist in unbelief in sin and sin, even though I have been praying for them and proclaiming to them and loving them and showing them the goodness of God in Christ, why do they persist in unbelief? Or we ask this question, and it's even more personal. And this could be you this morning. If the gospel really is the power of God to salvation, then why do I struggle with unbelief? Can God really save a person like me? And the answer to that question from Paul is a resounding yes, he can, and yes, he does. The gospel is more than able to overcome your unbelief. The gospel is more than able to overcome the unbelief of your unbelieving friends, family, and neighbors. And the gospel is more than able to overcome the unbelief, even of a very hard place, a very worldly place, like Ann Arbor, Michigan. And God can start a revival of His truth in the hearts of people in places where we don't even think it can happen. You see, Paul grounds his answer to us regarding these questions in the unshakable sovereignty of God. God's Word never fails because God is absolutely sovereign. Therefore, we can trust Him to always do what is right. That is the theme of Romans 9. God's Word never fails because God is absolutely sovereign. Therefore, we can, as His people, trust Him to always do what is right. Paul begins by showing us his pain. His pain over Israel's unbelief. Notice verses 1 and 2 where he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. These are the words of a heart that is overcome with a holy sorrow, a holy angst, a lament. Now, Paul simply could have said here, I am saying the truth, and that would have been sufficient validation for uh, the veracity of his following confession, his following assertion. But he, if we notice here, he makes a threefold witness to his confession so that there is no doubt that what he's about to say is true. He wants us to know this. He wants us to see his horror, sorrow, his, his brokenness of heart. And he uses a, a Hebrew rhetorical device to place emphasis on this so that his Jewish audience, the original audience of Romans, uh, were, was a mix of, of Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome. He wants those Jews to especially understand his deep anguish because he himself was a Jew. And so in for Hebrews... Uh, for the Jewish people to repeat something three times was to add to it the, the greatest possible emphasis. 
And so we see that happening even in Isaiah, right? Isaiah 6.3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so Paul does the same thing here. He says, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. And my very conscience is a witness. But not only that, he appeals also to his union with Christ and the indwelling Spirit of God to bear testimony that his words are true. See what he says? His, he says, I, if I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of others, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he appeals to the union of Christ because that statement is so unbelievable. He wants us to see that his sorrow and his anguish are so great that the very source of all truth, Christ himself, gives witness to that statement that it is true. Because it is so unthinkable. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. To be cut off from Christ to be placed under the holy wrath of God. Paul's saying, if, if that were possible, I would forfeit my own salvation for the salvation of my fellow Jews. I would be cursed in their place so that the curse that is against them because of their unbelief and sin would be removed. Now, which of us is willing to say that? I mean... I know we grieve, all of us, for those who are lost, who are trapped in unbelief. I've talked to many of you about family and friends that you just are brokenhearted over the fact that they have rejected Christ and continue to do so. We all have family and friends and neighbors that remain in unbelief and sin, and we, we shed tears in our prayers for them. But could we say like Paul... I'd be willing to trade places with them if it meant that they would be redeemed. I wish I could say I had Paul's zeal that he has for his unbelieving kinsmen. But notice something important here in Paul's impassioned lament. Because it does reveal a very important truth that we need to come to terms with if, if, we are going to be faithful witnesses of the gospel and the lies of the unbelievers that God puts in our path. Paul says, I could wish that I were accursed. In other words, what he is saying is this. He says, if it were possible, if it could be done, I would trade places with them. Because he knows it is absolutely impossible. He knows that he cannot give up his salvation to save others. Why? Because only God can save. Only Christ can redeem. Paul can't do that. As much as he desires it and wants it and laments for it, salvation can only be found in the name of Christ. Only Christ can save. Salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So self-sacrifice cannot save others as noble and compassionate as that idea might be. And that's where Paul's great sorrow comes in. 
Because he knows he can't do what he desires to do. He can't save the unbelieving Jews. He's powerless to do it. And that's a sorrow, I think, that we are all familiar with. We have those dear ones, as I mentioned, that we pray for to come to a saving knowledge of Christ and embrace Jesus in faith and repentance, but they will not. And so we continue to pray and we continue to plead and we show kindness and love. And we've done that for years and yet they just harden their heart and harden their heart. They will not repent. They will not hear. They will not listen to the words of truth for indeed they cannot. Their ears are stopped. They're blinded by their own sin and the corruption of their own minds to which God has given them over. And Paul understood that frustration that you feel so well because he felt it. City after city that he went to in his ministry proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, he would always go to the Jews and he'd always be rejected by them. His own people. And they had every privilege, every opportunity to hear the truth. He rehearses all their privileges. He says here that they are Israelites. That means they have the dignity of being associated with the name that God gave Jacob in 32.8. It's a covenant name. It was a great honor to be descended from Jacob to be an Israelite. He says they're adopted. Now, he's not talking about adoption as in the same sense as we saw back in Romans 8. But it does have to do with identification. Israel was first called God's son in Exodus 4. Paul says they also had the glory of God in their presence. Speaking of when God's glory filled the tabernacle and later the temple and the glory of God dwelling in the midst of his people on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant as a sign of God's presence with them. They had the covenants of Abraham, Moses, and David with all the promises associated with them. Promises pointing to a Messiah, a king who would rule forever and deliver his people from every enemy. They had the worship of the temple and the tabernacle to point them to their need for the remission of sins which comes from God's mercy. And they had promise after promise. They had the law, God's own revealed will to them of how they might live for God and His glory and know His blessing. They had the heritage, the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a great covenantal history in which God's love was displayed towards them. And to top it all off, Paul adds, they had Christ. They had Christ born in the flesh as a Jew. He who is God became flesh, born of a young Jewish virgin named Mary. And despite all of that, all of that witness to the truth and the mercy and the grace of God, they persisted in unbelief. And no amount of Paul's desire to see them come to faith could make that change. That's why he had such great sorrow in his heart. You know, we can use great and persuasive arguments. We can answer every objection to the gospel with logic and wisdom. We can pray and pray and pray. 
And we should do all of those things. In fact, we are compelled by the love of Christ to do those things for the unbeliever. But our deepest, most sincere effort cannot save the ones we love. Only God can. I mean, as Christians, we know we cannot save ourselves by our works, but equally as true is that we cannot save others through our good works on their behalf. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do them, right? As believers, we are not saved by our works, but we do those works. We are expected to do those works for the glory of God. That is one of the purposes of our salvation. And the same is true when it comes to loving others and pointing them to Christ and praying for them. We are to do those things, but those things will not save them. It must be God. But the reality is, after doing that so often and seeing rejection after rejection, it can become very painful. It was for Paul. It hurts when you see the people you love and care for continue in unbelief, especially when you ponder and consider the righteousness and the judgment of God. I mean, does our praying and proclaiming the gospel then really make any difference? Is it really the power of God to save everyone who believes? See, we ask this because there is so much unbelief in the world, and it's easy to think then that God's Word has failed. And when we put our sorrow and our frustrations with what seems like gospel failure into the bigger picture of the world, it feels like the church is in bad shape. It feels like we're in retreat. I mean, more and more young people are leaving the church, or as they say, deconstructing their faith. Gospel efforts like church planting are becoming increasingly difficult for those who seek to remain faithful to the truth of God's revealed Word. And our desires to see people we love come to faith in Christ cannot make them come to faith in Christ. But Paul says here, God's Word has not failed. Despite all of that belief, despite the struggle that we face, the weariness that we experience, the lament in our hearts, God's Word has not failed. And Paul shows us where his comfort is in verses 6 through 29 here. What was Paul's comfort? Well, simply, it's really stated in summary in verse 6. It's not as though the Word of God has failed, he says. Why? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he's going to unpack that statement for us. But basically what he's getting at is this, is that God's Word never fails because God is sovereign. God's word has not failed. That is to say, his, his covenant promises to save people for his name have not come to naught. They've not been undone by the unbelief of the world. Because the salvation of unbelievers is a matter of God's sovereign prerogative. 
The sovereignty of God in the salvation and the condemnation of sinners is the theme of most of Romans 9. But we must not lose sight that while Paul is driving so deeply into this doctrine of election, he is doing it to show this overall point that God's Word has not failed. It has not failed because God is sovereign. And that was Paul's great comfort The truth about God's sovereignty, which we learn here in Romans 9, compels us to surrender any claim we might make for our own salvation and any claim we might might make for the salvation of others. You see, if a person does come to faith through your testimony, your witness, your prayers, it wasn't the work that did it. Those were simply the means that God used to bring them to faith and repentance. It was the grace of God that did it. The sovereign grace of God. God has made oath-bound promises in His covenant of grace, which we see expressed in various ways throughout the Old Testament. Because belonging to Israel was not a matter of bloodline, of ethnicity, as Paul says here, but of grace. So everyone who trusts in Jesus alone for their redemption is part of those promises. That's spiritual Israel. And that means that God's Word is indeed fulfilled in the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. So God calls, or Paul rather, he's calling us back here to some Old Testament promises of grace to see this truth regarding God's sovereignty. First, he speaks of Abraham. He says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's quoting from Genesis 21. What happens in Genesis 21? Well, that is where Ishmael who was Abraham's son through the concubine Hagar, is cast out from the household of Abraham because he was not the son of the promise of God, rather a child of unbelief. God's promise would come through Isaac, not Ishmael, though both were the natural-born sons or offspring of Abraham. And so Paul very clearly states in verse 8 then, what this means is that it is not the children of the flesh, natural children, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise as counted as offspring. Just because there was rampant unbelief amongst the Jewish people, ethnic Israel, who are aware of the children of Israel according to the flesh by natural bloodline doesn't mean that there, is, uh, that there is not a true Israel, because there is. Because belonging to Israel was a matter of promise, a promise of grace. Paul takes us to another Old Testament example to see God's sovereign grace fulfilling his promised word. Verses 10 through 13 speak of Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, of course, were twins, with Esau being the older brother. Now, normally in the tradition of that time, the older brother was the one to receive the inheritance and carry on the family name, the household name. But God told Rebekah, Isaac's wife, as Paul quotes here, the older will serve 
the younger. So Esau would serve Jacob. And not just the brothers themselves, but the peoples descended from them. So in the eternal wisdom of God's providence, he sovereignly chose Jacob over Esau to be the heir of his covenant promises, just as he chose Isaac over Ishmael. Again, Paul is emphasizing that this has nothing to do with either of these brothers or what they would do. In fact, he says that very clearly. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, Though Jacob and Esau were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So God's choice of Jacob was not based on anything that he had done or would do. There was nothing in his life that earned the right for God to give him his blessing. And the point is, is that God's grace showered upon Jacob was 100% rooted in God's own sovereign will. Again, Paul's point is to show that God's sovereignty guarantees the success of what He promised. God said that He would have a people for His name and He is going to fulfill that as He has purposed to fulfill it. And it doesn't matter what a person may do or fail to do, they will not get in the way of God's promised word. He will accomplish it. The fulfillment of God's covenant promise to redeem a people for His name isn't dependent on who someone's father was or the family to which they belong. Just like Abraham had more than one son, it was to Isaac that the blessing fell. So it is with Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. And this point is further confirmed with these words in verse 13. As it is written, written, Jacob I loved... But Esau I hated. It's a quote from the prophet Malachi. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now do those words bother you? Don't answer out loud. But when you hear that, when you read that and see that in Scripture and what Paul writes, does it bother you? It might. We don't like to think about God's love being placed upon one person and His hate upon another person. In fact, in our modern view of God, we remove any idea that God would hate a person. After all, God is love. That is part of His being. Well, here's why we struggle with this statement. It's not because it isn't true. Because it is. It's the Word of God. It's because the way we think of things like love and hatred isn't what the way God expresses love and hatred. We think of love and hatred as feelings or emotions. Emotions are human reactions to things we experience in our lives. They're a response to to what we see in the world and what happens to us and what people say to us and do to us and how we view ourselves. But God, we see in the Bible, is without passions. He does not have emotions. 
Theologians call that divine impassibility. There'll be a quiz next week. Just kidding. But divine impassibility. God does not have emotions. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. When I read the Bible, I see God expressing emotion all the time. He rejoices. He gets angry. He shows love. He is grieved. Yes, that is true. That is absolutely true. But when we read those emotions, those are not feelings that God is expressing because of something that has happened to him. Rather, what they are are descriptions of how he acts. And so as you read through the Bible and you see an emotion of God, do this next time you see one, look in the context and say, what is God doing? Why is he expressing joy? What has he done? Why does God show anger here? What is he doing? You'll see, it's not a reaction that just came because he was surprised by what somebody did. You'll see that it is a sovereign act of God. God is not influenced or impacted by feelings like we are as his creatures. If he was, he wouldn't be God. Because if he was, it means that he could be controlled by outside influences because of those passions. If God were like that, it means that that we as humans could somehow control and manipulate God by simply getting the right emotional response. But we can't do that. Why? Because God is sovereign. He does what He pleases because He is the Creator, the Almighty Maker of all that is. He rules and reigns over all. He controls all things. He ordains all things. All that He does is always right because He is perfectly righteous and holy. And so when He says to Jacob, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, He's speaking of what He has done. Now, when we hate something, it is an emotional response, often full of malice and vindictiveness and bitterness. And when we love something, it is often a feeling of care or compassion or attraction and fondness. But God's love for Jacob is seen in what he did for Jacob, specifically that he chose Jacob to be the heir of the promise. And God's hate of Esau was his rejection of Esau. He chose Jacob to be the heir and he rejected Esau from that same role. And in doing that, he ensured that his word would not fail. His word that he would have a people for his name, a redeemed people. Esau is portrayed in scripture as an immoral man, full of sinful disinterest in the things of God. The author of Hebrews instructs us that that we ought to see too the fact that we should not be like Esau. He says, so that no one would be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. That's Hebrews twelve sixteen. Now Jacob, of course, was certainly not the shining example of holiness and righteousness. If you know his story, he certainly was a manipulator, a conniver. He was deceitful. But one thing that Jacob did show and manifest, which Esau did not, was that Jacob 
believed God's promise. He had faith in God's promise. Esau did not. In fact, he despised it so much that he was willing to satisfy the hunger in his belly and sell off his birthright, which meant a rejection of the promise, simply so he could get what he wanted. But Jacob desired that blessing. And yes, he went through deceitful means to secure it, but it came because he believed it was true. So God chose Jacob, who was weak, who was the second born, not the natural choice to be the heir of the blessing. God chose him. And it is through him that his promise would be fulfilled. And Paul tells us why in verse 11, why he chose Jacob in order that God's purpose of election might continue so that his purpose would not end, that his word would not fail. And then he adds, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Not because of works, though as good as they might be, but because of him, that is God, who calls, who sovereignly calls and administers his grace as he pleases. Because of him who calls and thus achieves what he purposed. God's word does not fail because God is sovereign. Now, there is much more to say about that that we can consider regarding the doctrine of election, and it will have to wait till next week for the sake of time. But here's the big takeaway I want you to take with you as we go from this place, and it's very simply this. It's what Paul's comfort was. It's that you can take God at his word when it comes to the unbelief in the world. You can take God at his word that he is sovereign. He is powerful enough to overcome that belief. And he does do that in this world. He's going to do what he said he will do because he is sovereign. And that is a great comfort for the believer. There is great comfort in knowing that God who orders all things is working all things according to his perfect will. And first of all, it takes away your reliance upon your own inabilities to bring about the righteousness of God and his kingdom in this world. Because let's admit it, it does get frustrating when you see unrighteousness seemingly prevail. But the kingdom hasn't fallen away. It is still there. It is still growing. It is still expanding because God is still saving a people for his name. His word has not failed. And as Christians, we want righteousness to reign. We want to see Christ's kingdom grow and expand according to the promise of God that it would do so, but we can't make that happen through our own power. We need to rely on God to accomplish it as He has purposed. As I said earlier, it doesn't matter how much we desire someone to come to faith in Christ, that desire alone can't save them. We can't make them believe, but God's desire can, and it does. When God desires a person to repent and trust Jesus... They will. They will. It doesn't matter how strong their unbelief is. God's going to overcome that. 
And so you can trust God to save the hardest sinners. Paul had great sorrow in his heart so that if he could, he would give up his own salvation for the salvation of his fellow Jews. But while he could not do that, he knew the one who could and who did give up himself to save his fellow Jews. He knew Christ. That is where our hope is. In Christ, our sovereign King. See, God can save the most resistant Jew. Paul knew that. Because after all, he was that Jew at one time. He was known as Saul of Tarsus. The persecutor of the church. The one who put Christians to death and imprisoned them. A zeal, a zealot for the law who thought himself to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, that Jew who was so hard was overcome by the grace of the gospel. Why? Because God had purposed it to happen. And God continues to save people that way. No, his word has not failed. And so that cherished friend or family member that you have that seems so hostile to God, who at any mention of the name of Jesus stops their ears and and hardens their hearts, that person cannot stop the overwhelming grace of God towards them when God is determined to save them. You don't know how God is at work. And what that means then is don't stop praying. Do not be discouraged. Do not stop loving them. Do not stop pointing them to the truth of the gospel. Do it to your dying day. Because God's word doesn't fail. His sovereign will always prevails. And finally, if you are here and you are struggling with the sense of your faith and salvation in Christ because you think that God could never rescue you from your sin, know this, because God is sovereign, He absolutely can. He saved Paul, after all, a persecutor of the church. God chose Jacob to be the heir of God's covenant promises, not because of anything Jacob had done, but because God had determined, this is what I will do. And Jacob wasn't even born yet. He hadn't done anything good or bad, but God in his providence chose him. And it is that same gracious providence that is more than able to save you from all of your guilt and your sin and your shame. Or maybe you are the Christian. You are a Christian. You do believe You trust the gospel. You understand it. But you keep looking at the failure of your own faith. You're plagued with doubts about whether or not you really are a child of God. You wonder, did I pray hard enough? Did I really believe deep enough? Do I really understand all things? Am I really trusting Christ perfectly? Well, see, it's not about the caliber of your conviction or the quality of your faith at all. It's about the sovereign grace of God who saved you before you could even utter a word of belief. Trust that grace and that mercy, not what you have done or or haven't done. The very fact that you as a believer long to taste the joy of the Lord and the salvation is evidence of His powerful grace at work in your life. 
And so trust that grace. I mean, those whom God has rejected, like Esau, have no desire whatsoever for his saving grace. But if that is your desire, look to that grace. Look to Christ. Look to what God has done for you. He loved you before the foundations of the world and said, I will make you mine. Trust that unfailing word to save you and to keep you. For God's word never fails because God is always sovereign. His grace is relentless for his people. What he has purposed, he will do. And so keep on praying, keep on proclaiming, keep on plotting for the kingdom and keep on believing and trusting him because the word of God has not failed, nor will it ever fail. Because sovereign grace always prevails. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this truth. And what it reveals to us that though we struggle often because of the unbelief of the world, we know that this does not stop you from doing what you have promised. For you are indeed raising up a spiritual Israel as according to your promise. Father, I ask that you would encourage our hearts, that you would fill us with a holy boldness, as a zeal for your kingdom, that we would not be discouraged or dismayed by the rejection we see of those we love, but that we would continue to pray for them, knowing that you can break down those walls of unbelief, and that they will submit in glorious repentance and faith to King Jesus. Father, I pray for the believer in our midst who struggles with their own doubts and discouragements. I ask that you would encourage them by the fact that it is not the strength of their faith that saves them, but it is the gift of your grace in Christ that does so. May they continue to look to him, build them up, and encourage them. And Father, for the unbeliever that is here, I pray that you would overcome that unbelief, that those walls of resistance would be torn down and that your sovereign grace would prevail and that you would save them through the blood of the Lamb who was slain and is risen and now lives forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.